Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is an apostrophe podcast production. We regret to inform you, the Rejection Podcast. By prototype number 2,627, my wife and I were really counting our pennies. By 3,727, she was giving art lessons for some extra cash. These were tough times. James Dyson. One day in 1957, James Dyson did something unexpected. He raised his hand at morning assembly. Dyson was 10 years old, attending a boarding school in Norfolk, England called Gresham's, a Hogwarts-like preparatory where words like headmaster, prefect, and waistcoat are tossed around as often as cricket balls. And on that fateful day, said headmaster made an announcement to the 200 students standing before him. He said the orchestra was short a few key players, specifically to play the oboe, clarinet, violin, viola, and the bassoon. Young Dyson had never been particularly interested in music, but suddenly he couldn't get the word bassoon out of his head. It was a funny-sounding word, bassoon. He had no idea what kind of instrument it was, perhaps a type of flute. 
The year before, Dyson had lost his father to cancer. As a result, he wasn't doing well in school and was desperate for community. So out of nowhere, almost involuntarily, he raised his hand. He'd join the orchestra and be the school's bassoon player. He said when they handed him the instrument, he was horrified. It was double his height, required a double reed, and appeared to have double the keys of any other wind instrument. He quickly understood the vacancy. The bassoon was widely regarded as one of the most difficult instruments in the orchestra. Even his music teacher didn't know how it worked. The knot in his tie suddenly felt tighter. But he was committed. He started practicing, never missed a music class, and in no time had mastered the bassoon. Dyson later said in his book, Against the Odds, that in the early days of his career, he often reflected back on that bassoon. Because little did he know, one day he'd find himself tinkering with another clumsy piece of pipe that would also have him shaking in his penny loafers. At age 11, Dyson took up another artistic endeavor, painting. He discovered painting through art class and took to it instantly because losing his father was traumatic and the canvas was a safe place to express his feelings. He painted a watercolor of Blakeney Point off the Norfolk coast, a four-mile stretch of sand dunes surrounded by birds and bird-watching enthusiasts. The painting was entered into a worldwide competition and young James Dyson won. It was his first taste of international success. And though it was entirely unexpected, he said it was entirely welcome. Dyson had failed Latin and Greek and barely skated by ancient history, but art he passed with flying colors. One year, Gresham's put on a school play, Richard Brinsley Sheridan's The Critic, and Dyson took on the role of stage designer. The Critic took place in 1779, and as designer in charge, Dyson set his mind on injecting such an old world story with a little creativity. So instead of printing typical programs for the audience, which he thought were dull and expected, he decided to design the playbills as 18th century scrolls. It was outside the box thinking for a 17 year old. The scrolls were to be printed on aged, tea-stained paper using italicized fonts and Napoleon-era language. Dyson was very proud of his creation, picturing all the dressed-up parents' delight when they realized their programs were part of the play. So he biked into town to give the printer his precise instructions. Two days before opening night, the scrolls were delivered. They came out exactly as Dyson had imagined. But before he could fully bask in the triumph of his idea, his housemaster came stomping down the corridor. He had steam shooting out of his ears. He hated the scrolls. They went against tradition. Dyson tried to defend himself, explaining that the scrolls were in keeping with the era. But the housemaster didn't care. He just repeated over and over that programs should be flat 
and he marched back to the printer to get their money back. Two nights later, the impeccably dressed Gresham's parents were handed flat playbills. It was the first time James Dyson realized his love of injecting dull, utilitarian items with a little creativity, and the first of many times it would be rejected. By the time his final year at Gresham's rolled around, Dyson found himself sitting in the careers office, tasked with deciding which of his limited interests he could turn into income. The guidance counselor suggested he become a real estate agent, and his family wanted him to study the classics, language, history, and philosophy, just like his school teacher father. But there was only one pursuit that tickled his fancy, art. So against the advice of practically every adult in Norfolk, Dyson packed his bags and headed for the big city to London's Byam Shaw Art School. Art School gave Dyson a myriad of gifts, including how to draw forms. He said not just how to sketch them, but how to truly represent the essence and function of something. And most importantly, Art school was where he met his future wife, Deirdre, a woman he described in his autobiography as a complete 60s chick. She had Twiggy-like looks and what he thought was an Australian accent. But as it turned out, Deirdre was born with an earshot of the bells of St. Mary LeBeau Church. In other words, she was Cockney. And Dyson was in love. After a short stint at Byam, Dyson moved on to graduate school at the Royal College of Art, where he was forced to narrow his focus. The options included sculpting, graphic design, film, photography, and furniture design. He thought designing furniture sounded intriguing. He liked chairs. As he said, he'd sat in many before. So it was settled. He'd venture off the canvas and into the physical world. While at the Royal College of Art, two major things happened for Dyson. One, he enrolled in his very first engineering class. And two, he met his very first mentor. In structural engineering, Dyson learned the wonders of buildings and bridges, but slowly realized what fascinated him most was plastic. But to his professors, plastic wasn't important. Wood, they said wood is important. But natural materials seemed dull to young Dyson. He wanted to play with synthetics. In his first year at RCA, he met a fellow named Jeremy Fry, an inventor and founder of his own engineering company, who was 20 years Dyson's senior. Fry was impressed with Dyson's interest in modern materials. The two hit it off, and he offered Dyson a job straight out of college. Fry's company was in the process of designing a high-speed landing craft, one that could transition seamlessly from land to ocean, called the Sea Truck, a vehicle that, among other things, would be used for transporting livestock, for military purposes, or for construction. Dyson had never designed a product in his life. He looked at Fry and asked what the first step was. 
Fry pointed at a pile of welding gear and simply said, go do it, then wandered back to his office. It was terrifying, but there Dyson was, holding an acetylene torch, making mistakes and learning how to create something himself from scratch. When Dyson finished the prototype, he turned to Fry and said, now what? Fry said, now we manufacture it. Dyson said, then what? Fry said, well, after that, we sell it. Fry was an invaluable mentor for Dyson and a sort of father figure. He said Fry was the first engineer, designer, and entrepreneur he had ever met. And that mixture was intoxicating. Through Fry, he learned to make new products, to test them, tweak them, perfect them, and perhaps equally as important, to market them. Fry also taught Dyson that there's value in being inexperienced because you inadvertently buck convention and look at the world through fresh eyes. But it wasn't just Dyson that got something out of their relationship. As he says, Fry also needed him for one particular reason. Dyson knew how to make things beautiful. He had an art background and function wasn't marketable without aesthetics. Soon, Dyson was promoted to managing the Sea Truck Marine Division where he learned how to be a salesperson and over the next few years would earn the company millions of dollars. With that success, newlyweds and new parents Dyson and Deirdre bought a 300-year-old farmhouse in the English countryside. It was lovely, but a real fixer-upper. They had a sizable mortgage, so they couldn't hire anyone to help them dig ditches, tear down and put up walls, pour cement or landscape. So Dyson found himself relying heavily on one piece of equipment in particular, the wheelbarrow. In his autobiography, James Dyson lays out nine reasons he discovered the typical wheelbarrow is, in his own words, crummy. The list includes easily punctured wheels, sinking into soft ground, ruining lawns, instability, proneness to rust, and sharp edges. To sum up, it was a mousetrap nobody had bothered to reinvent. But there was a reason for that. Wheelbarrows were built for builders, builders who weren't worried about accidentally jamming into doors or ruining lawns, because they probably weren't their doors or their lawns. And frankly, they probably weren't even their wheelbarrows. He knew an efficient wheelbarrow needed wider legs and a softer container, maybe made of plastic, that wouldn't rust and didn't stick to cement. Then, his final epiphany. While working on the sea truck one day, he realized he needed a round piece of material to seal some pipes. And Dyson came up with the idea of a polyethylene sphere. It was light, unpuncturable and didn't stick to barnacles. And that's when it hit him. A polyethylene sphere, basically a plastic soccer ball, could replace the typical wheel in a wheelbarrow. So Dyson walked into Jeremy Fry's office and handed in his two weeks notice. 
He had a million dollar idea and he too would be an entrepreneur. He said goodbye to designing other people's ideas and goodbye to watching higher-ups reap the rewards of his hard work. But it was also a goodbye to a steady salary and a company car. Fry was shocked, but supportive. Suddenly, Dyson was out on his own. He later said he was, quote, curiously mellow. He and his wife now had two other mouths to feed, hefty debt and an even heftier mortgage. But Deirdre believed in her husband. And Dyson got to work making his first solo invention he called the ball barrow. Once he had come up with the prototype for the ball barrow, he drove it over to a plastics plant to discuss manufacturing the ball. But they stopped him dead in his tracks. It wasn't feasible. They said, you can't mold plastic into a complete sphere. And even if you could, it certainly wouldn't work as a wheelie ball thing or whatever it is. Dyson managed to convince his brother-in-law to become an investor in the ball barrow, and they each put up 12,000 pounds. But after countless attempts, they still couldn't secure a manufacturer. Dyson said it felt as though people were lining up to prove he couldn't make a go of the business alone, rubbing their hands together at the idea of him crawling back to the land of the sea truck with his tail between his legs. But he believed in the ball barrow. So he decided if nobody else was up to it, he'd build the bloody parts himself and borrowed 45,000 pounds from the bank to buy his own manufacturing equipment. Dyson had no business plan and no marketing plan, just Deirdre painting the words, ball barrow is here on the side of a van. Dyson hauled his invention to garden centers, but they weren't interested. They thought a green barrow attached to a bright orange ball looked too strange. No one would buy it. They told Dyson that regular wheelbarrows were fine and had been fine for years. Wheelbarrows didn't need a makeover. Dyson started to get nervous. He and his brother-in-law had funneled a lot of money into this project. So he made a decision. Instead of touting the invention to companies, he'd switch gears and sell directly to the public. So he took out a tiny newspaper ad listing the ball barrow's numerous benefits to consumers, wedged between coupons for off-brand Rogaine and adult diapers. And suddenly, out of nowhere, checks started pouring in. Journalists started writing about his newfangled wheelbarrow, and soon he needed even more cash to keep up with demand. So Dyson started an official ball barrow company. He brought on a sales manager and a group of keen investors and assigned the patent to the company. Ball Barrow's sales manager thought it best to bring the ball barrow overseas to the land of consumerism, America. But while he was there, instead of pitching the ball barrow, he pitched himself and ended up ditching the company for one of their competitors, leaving a disappointed and anxious Dyson to take on the sales role himself. Over the next few months, Dyson began calling manufacturers in the States when he got an absolutely devastating piece of news. Sears was already selling a ball barrow. 
Dyson couldn't believe it. How was this possible? It was his invention. But as it turned out, the sales manager who had abandoned ship had stolen his idea and given it straight to his new bosses. They copied the name, the colors, and even Deirdre's slogan, the ball barrow is here. Dyson was livid. His company spent the next year tied up in an overseas legal battle that wound up doing nothing but draining what was left of their funds. A judge ruled the name ball barrow wasn't even trademarkable because it was purely descriptive. There was a ball and a barrow. Meanwhile, their debt compounded and compounded. And one cold day in January of 1979, the board informed Dyson he was out. He had given away the majority shares to his investors. They now controlled the company and the patent. He was the one with the poor judgment who had hired the nasty sales manager in the first place. And he had failed to protect the brand. Basically, Dyson dropped the ball. The company sold what was left of his idea and the manufacturing equipment, and soon after, disbanded. Losing Ball Barrow left Dyson with a sort of phantom limb syndrome. He felt alone, a failure, and completely shattered. And we'll be right back. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
The Dysons now had three children, so they moved to a more practical home for a family of five in the city of Bath. With the new home came new chores, like vacuuming. The space had more wood flooring than it did carpet, and thus to clean it properly, Dyson realized they needed extra suction. So he and Deirdre bought what was billed as the most powerful vacuum cleaner in the world. It was huge and spaceship-shaped. But eventually, he noticed it lost its suction. He figured the bag was full, but didn't have any extras on hand. So he took out the full bag, emptied its contents into the garbage can, and put the empty bag back inside the vacuum. Dyson was thrilled. Why hadn't he thought of this before? Maybe he'd never have to buy new bags again. But when he turned on the vacuum, it still had no suction power. So he went down to the store and bought new bags. He put in a fresh one, and suddenly, the suction was powerful again. Odd, he thought. He looked closely at the original bag and realized there was a fine coating of dust lining the inside, blocking its pores. And that's when he realized, we don't replace the bags in a vacuum because they're full. We replace them because they're blocked. Interesting. Back when Dyson was making the ball barrow, he had realized the best way to paint the frames was to use powder paint rather than wet paint. The only problem was that in the painting process, some of the powder often missed the frame. And to stop it from spraying onto the floors of the factory and causing a mess, they had to use a giant cyclone suction system, the same kind you might find at a sawmill dealing with sawdust, to collect rogue paint powder from the air. The way a cyclone works is through centrifugal force. When a cyclone spins, it collects the dust inside what looks like an upside-down wine bottle. The dust then spins around the outside walls of the bottle like a tornado, while air moves freely through the center. The same principle that keeps a ball on the outside perimeter of a roulette wheel. When Dyson looked at his home vacuum, he reflected back on the factory cyclone, and it gave him a thought. What if he made a mini version of that cyclone and put it inside a vacuum cleaner? Tiresome bags would be a thing of the past. So he made a little cyclone out of cardboard and scotch tape and attached it to his vacuum hose. And to his surprise, it worked. He brought the idea to investors and they all said one thing, don't be ridiculous. If there was a better way to make a vacuum cleaner, Hoover or Electrolux would have done it already. Dyson was baffled. Here he was sitting on an idea that he thought could, quote, instantly dominate an enormous market. And yet, no one was even remotely interested. Sure that his idea was not ridiculous, Dyson approached the one person he knew appreciated innovation, his old mentor, Jeremy Fry. He showed Fry the plans and he instantly got it and offered to put up 49% of the capital. The rest, Dyson would get from the bank. That money would go toward paying Dyson's salary while he worked on a prototype. 
So Dyson holed up in the shed in his backyard, crafting his first iteration, then his second, then his third, each featuring one single change so he could track which additions made the biggest impact. He said in his interview with Guy Raz that the biggest issue with the cyclone was that it picked up fine dust very well. Things like lint, however, weren't getting trapped inside the vortex. Instead, they flew right through the center. So Dyson made hundreds of prototypes, then thousands. His extended family and friends thought he was crazy, calling him obsessive and mad. For three years, he sat in that cold shed, tinkering with pipes. Some months were dedicated solely to crumbs, others to pet hair. But by prototype number 2600, his family's financial situation was dire. Deirdre started teaching evening art classes and selling some of her paintings to make ends meet. Dyson later said it was a combination of fear and hope that kept him going. Fear he'd lose everything he and Deirdre had built. Fear his debt would become insurmountable. Hope they'd survive it all. By prototype number 4,000, Dyson wrestled with sleepless nights, but took comfort in the fact that if all else failed, the two of them had what he called practical skills to fall back on. She could become a full-time painter, and he could make furniture out of wood. But after hundreds of tweaks and thousands of iterations, he held in his hands prototype number 5,127. Dyson's invention was complete. He called it the air power vacuum cleaner. It was perfect, even by his standards. 100% suction, 100% of the time. It could even pull cigarette smoke straight out of the air. But being as deeply in the red as they were at the time, Dyson and Fry decided they couldn't afford to manufacture the vacuum cleaners themselves. Instead, they'd have to license the technology to, say, a Hoover or Electrolux. So they decided to call their company Prototypes Limited, and Dyson quite literally became a traveling vacuum cleaner salesman. Dyson spoke to every vacuum cleaner company who'd give him a meeting. They were all very intrigued by the technology. As he said, they gave it a good look but no one was interested in changing what had been working for them so well for so many years. Current vacuum sales were consistent. Why mess with a good thing? Many even said that though a bagless vacuum would be more convenient, they made a good chunk of their money selling bags, like razor companies with replacement blades. Dyson later told New York Magazine that no one would license his technology, not because it was a bad idea, but because it was bad for business. So for one year, he banged on doors all over the world. Then two years, then three years went by of straight rejection. He got close to a couple deals, namely with Black & Decker, Amway, and Conair. But every time the deal fell through, the companies either losing interest, changing their minds, or changing the rules. But most of the time, they just stopped returning his calls. 
If it was dire before, it was desperate now. Perseverance, Dyson says, isn't cheap. Deirdre was basically raising their children on her own while Dyson dragged his cyclone vacuum across the globe, which he hated, compounded by the fact he had nothing to show for his absence. As he said in his book, he had turned into a frustrated monster, a steep departure from his typical teddy bear self. Then the phone rang. It was Jeremy Fry. He wanted out of Prototypes Limited. It wasn't making money. And Fry had held on nobly for nearly seven years. Dyson was crushed, but he understood. He was out on his own yet again, on the brink of bankruptcy and in deep despair. Then the phone rang again. It was a long distance call from Japan. A man from a small company called Apex was on the line. He was very interested in Dyson's design and was looking to license the technology to manufacture luxury vacuum cleaners in Japan. Each vacuum would cost 1,200 pounds a pop, 10% of the royalties going straight into Dyson's pocket. Dyson was thrilled. The deal was clean, the company was enthusiastic, and the money would save him from bankruptcy. Oh, happy day. The following year, he spent flying back and forth between England and Japan, getting his vacuum into production. But though the vacuums were selling, at the end of the day, he wanted more than 10%. So he thought, instead of making expensive machines to sell to a select group of wealthy Japanese customers, he should focus on a more affordable machine to sell to the masses worldwide. With the cash flow from Japan, Dyson went back to the drawing board and came up with a smaller vacuum in yellow and silver with a clear bin so users can see exactly how well their fancy new machine was working. He called it a Dyson Dual Cyclone. He said his own last name told customers everything they needed to know, that he owned the product and was personally responsible for everything that came with it, that it was unique, and that it was very obviously British. James Dyson was 31 years old when he took apart his Hoover to examine the bag. By the time the dual cyclone was complete, it was his 45th birthday. He marched his latest invention around to investors, but yet again was rejected for what felt like the millionth time. But he believed the best vacuum in the world bore his name. And if no one wanted to invest in Dyson, Dyson would find a way to secure the funds for himself. And by some miracle, he found a bank with a bank manager who agreed to loan him 600,000 pounds. Dyson was shocked at the number. When he later asked the bank manager why he was granted the loan, the man said he had gone home and asked his wife what she thought of a vacuum cleaner that didn't require bags. And she said it would be life-changing. 
The entirety of the 600,000 pound loan would have to go toward building his own manufacturing equipment and Dyson and Deirdre's family home would have to be put up as collateral. Then Dyson had an idea. He remembered back when the ball barrow wouldn't sell and how he had achieved success by selling direct to consumer. So he thought, what if he got his vacuum into catalogs? At the time, mail order vacuums accounted for 20% of the English vacuum market. So he approached several catalog companies and managed to find one man who was willing to commit to looking at the dual cyclone. It was certainly different, modern, eye-catching, but the man asked Dyson why he should put his vacuum into the catalog in the place of a Hoover or Electrolux. Exhausted, Dyson dryly said, because your catalog is boring, Brian, that's why. The man looked at Dyson for a moment, laughed, then said, okay, I'll give it a go. In no time, Dyson's vacuum had made its way into a second catalog, then a third. From there, he landed John Lewis, a famed British department store. The dual cyclone cost almost double the other vacuums on the market. But Dyson knew once people tried it and saw the difference, word of mouth would spread across Britain. And almost overnight, the Dyson Dual Cyclone became John Lewis's best-selling vacuum cleaner. By 1995, the Dyson Dual Cyclone was the number one selling vacuum in the whole of the UK. Suddenly, the Dyson brand was worth nearly a hundred million pounds. James Dyson paid off all his debt, paid his engineers, manufacturers, and bookkeeper salaries. He could buy his own factory and even expand his product line. He paid himself and supported his family, who had supported him in his quest for 15 years. Dyson says the most exciting part of his success isn't the money. It's the joy of watching his customers rave about their vacuums, something no one ever did before. Soon, the Dyson brand crossed the pond and eventually made its way into 65 countries. Dyson protected his idea, retaining 100% ownership over the company. And 25 years later, Dyson is still the number one vacuum brand in the United Kingdom making James Dyson a billionaire and leaving his competition in the dust. Five thousand one hundred and twenty-seven. That means James Dyson failed 5,126 times to perfect his invention. When he was asked many years later what the most important characteristic an inventor must have, he replied, Perseverance. Such a powerful, recurring theme in all our episodes. Talent gets you in the race. Perseverance pushes you across the finish line. But Dyson also demonstrated that perseverance doesn't come cheap. He had to go into debt. He had to put his house on the line. He was called mad and obsessive. 
He was rejected over and over again by teachers, by investors, by manufacturers, by banks. It's especially telling that Dyson was also rejected by all the big vacuum cleaner companies. You would think they would be hungry for disruptive technology. But at that time, the disposable vacuum bag market was worth 100 million pounds a year. That's the interesting aspect of the success trap. Success can stop a company from exploring. It can make it resistant to change. It becomes blind to opportunity. So they retreat and repeat. That stubborn entrenchment eventually opened a door that Dyson walked right through with his amazing dual cyclone innovation. Even when he was told over and over again that his idea was worthless because if it had any value, Hoover or Electrolux would have thought of it, he never lost hope. Even when he failed over 5,000 times in that cold shed in his backyard, he didn't stop trying. Years before, when he was in school, Dyson was a long-distance runner, and he learned a lifelong lesson. When you feel exhausted and want to quit, that is precisely the point when everybody else wants to quit. So it's at that very point that you should accelerate. If you can do that, success is just around the corner. 5,127 prototypes. It's almost inconceivable. It proves that success rarely strikes in one big aha moment. Instead, it accumulates. That's why Dyson believes you have to embrace failure, because life is a mountain of solvable problems. James Dyson also had one other secret weapon, his wife, Deirdre. She believed in him through 5,126 scary moments when everything they had in life was on the line. Fulfilling a dream demands belief beyond all reason. That perseverance resulted in the best-selling vacuum cleaner in the UK. Dyson now employs over 5,800 engineers. The company invests over $10 million per week in product development. There is a Dyson Institute of Engineering and Technology, where they re-engineer engineers. Annual company sales, $5.7 billion. It must suck to be Dyson's competition. Never, ever give up. James Dyson, knighted by Queen Elizabeth, 2006. Number of patents secured, 7,500. Net worth, $6.6 billion. Married to Deirdre, 52 years. Only billionaire who still vacuums his own home, James Dyson. The Rejection Podcast is an apostrophe podcast production and is recorded in an Airstream mobile recording studio. This episode is hosted and written by me, Sydney O'Reilly. Research, Allison Pinches. Director, Callie O'Reilly. Engineer, Keith Oman. 
Producer, Debbie O'Reilly. Theme music by Ian Lefevre and Ari Posner. Major sources for this episode are listed in the show notes on our website, apostrophepodcasts.ca slash rejection. Follow us on social at apostrophepod. If you're interested in advertising on our show, come on down. Message us through our site. We regret to inform you that this series is executive produced by Terry O'Reilly. See you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.